The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Robert E. Lee, the Marble Man, has been portrayed through the years as larger than life. Biographers like Douglas Suttle Freeman have made Lee into a monument of all that was best in the antebellum South. Critics like Alan Nolan or Thomas Connolly have chipped away in vain at the facade of perfection that Lee's admirers have constructed. Since Lee's own writings have never been collected or published, that facade has resisted every effort to look beneath until now. Join us today as we talk with Elizabeth Brown Pryor about her Lincoln Prize winning book, Reading the Man, a portrait of Robert E. Lee through his private letters on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. We all lead busy lives, and sometimes we think we can't take care of our health. We battle food addictions, time restrictions, and media conflictions when it comes to our health. Now, you can tune in to the Dare to Be Healthy Show with host Alia Almoayed. Good health comes to those who dare to take the leap into the amazing world of natural healing. Find out what it's like to look and feel great. And finally, live your life to its maximum potential. Let Alia and her guests show you how. Dare to Be Healthy is broadcast live Mondays at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful autumn afternoon, a Friday in early December 2010, from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on the third floor of the archaic but not beautiful Brewster Building. But as always, not speaking for the university, it's just my own show, and I know our guest likewise will represent no views but her own. Uh, we say that each week to make the lawyers happy. Uh, lawyers would be happy, I'm sure, also that uh, listeners to this show, if they tune in early, can hear the show before this one, uh, which today was, I believe, the Learn to Swim show. Uh, I, I'm not sure how... I have great confidence in radio as a medium, but learning to swim by radio does strike me as uh, uh, fraught with difficulty. Uh, yet I'm sure they do a fine job on that show, so I won't say anything else about it. Uh, rather, just encourage uh, listeners to uh, tune in here, uh, both today and in uh, next week. We'll have uh, Jennifer Weber talking about uh, Copperheads, uh, the dissenting northerners during the war as well as a new project she's working on and then we'll have the holiday break uh, final exams will rule campus here for a while and we'll take some time off and come back with new live shows 
after the first of the year, uh, returning January 7th, Mark Egnell with his controversial book on the causes of the Civil War will be our first guest. And January 7th and January 14th, Peter Carmichael, who now directs the Civil War Institute at uh, Gettysburg College, will join us. And we've got other interesting people lined up in the weeks that follow that. If you want to see what's been on the, the, the program before, please uh, check, of course, the website you're listening uh, to right at this moment uh, or that you downloaded this from. And if you didn't get it directly from World Talk Radio, be sure to check out uh, www.impedimentsofwar.org. It's uh, all one word, Impediments of War. It is the uh, uh, most important site on the entire Internet. Uh, it captures this show with uh, the list of past shows, uh, the titles, so you can easily see what they are. Uh, it does not use the, the old uh, dark gray on black format of the World Talk Radio archive website, or at least they used to use that. It was difficult to read. Uh, and you can listen to all of the previous shows, which uh, Mark Gaffney, the webmaster, has pointed out is now approaching 200. We'll get to the 200th episode of Civil War Talk Radio in February 2011 and uh, appropriately uh, celebrate at that time. But uh, today we get to celebrate with a particularly interesting book, uh, uh, before we jump in with the author, I will apologize to listeners and to my guests in advance that uh, allergies have been wreaking havoc with me over the past week. And if I break into a sneezing fit, I will urge our guests to just keep talking as if nothing's happening. Uh, I'll, I'll just uh, turn away from the mouthpiece and carry on. Much as uh, President McKinley, William McKinley, used to do with his, his wife when she suffered uh, an epileptic seizure during a uh, public reception, he would simply apply the chloroform handkerchief to her face and continue talking with his guests as if nothing ever happened. 19th century reticence made it improper to acknowledge that there was anything wrong with her obvious distress. Uh, not something we can imagine today, but we will reenact that scene uh, if necessary this afternoon. Well, our guest, as I said in the introduction, uh, Elizabeth Brown Pryor has written a uh, a prize-winning and uh, very highly regarded book about Robert E. Lee and has uh, graciously agreed to join us today. Uh, Elizabeth, are you there? I am here. Well, thank you for joining us today. It was, uh, it was nice to meet you back in uh, June in, in Richmond at the Civil War uh, Society of Civil War Historians Convention, and I appreciate you making time to uh, join us on the show today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I have to say I'm also suffering from allergies, so we might have a sneeze off here <laughs> during the show. Well, that, that can happen this time of year, certainly. Now, in, I, I often ask uh, guests on the show about their, their day jobs. Uh, half the time, maybe less than half the time, they, uh, people who write Civil War books also teach for a living, but uh, at least half the time, it seems, they do other things. And uh, you have a, a career not just writing about history, but making history. Uh, can you tell us about that? Well, we might put that in the past tense. I am actually am uh, writing history full-time now. But I did uh, serve in the Foreign Service for many, many years. And, um, yes, was present at a number of historic moments. I was in Bosnia during the war there got to uh, 
stay long enough to see the piece, which was very gratifying. I was in one of the last groups of people that was in South Africa just before we were able to help overturn apartheid there. I worked at NATO during the Kosovo War in the White House twice and so on. So I've been very fortunate to have really the privilege of serving my country in some uh, remarkable moments and um, hopefully being able to contribute to their positive outcome. Now, that must have affected your writing in some way, to have those kinds of experiences that, that when you're, you're writing about a, a world-changing moment in the 1860s, uh, how, how did it affect you to have the perspective to, to know what one of those moments looked like firsthand? Well, I think particularly having been involved in a real shooting war twice, I also was involved, of course, in the war in Kosovo, and apartheid um, changed what had been almost a civil war in South Africa, or maybe forestalled a really bloodbath of a civil war there, but certainly had the kind of tensions and racial tensions that um, took place in the United States in the 1850s and 60s. So I think having had that experience of war, knowing what it's like to really be shot at, seeing your friends die, um, hoping and working for peace but not being always certain how you would get there can't help but have an effect on how you view things. I would have to say, you know, I was in Bosnia uh, during the time that very few flights went in and out of Bosnia, and um, the only flights you could get were UN flights, and you had a very restricted amount of baggage that you could take with you. But uh, from the uh, 12 kilos, which is about 25 pounds, that we were allowed to take in, and remember this is a place that had no sanitation, no food, no water, um, no heat. So you were, it was as if you were camping in the high Alps. You had to take everything with you uh, at a very low weight to survive. But four pounds of my 25 pounds were some photocopies of letters from General Lee when he had been involved in the siege of Petersburg. So he was a very good friend to me there. I um, learned a lot from him by reading those letters and appreciated some of the things he'd gone through. He had uh, had to spend some Christmases alone, which I did, had to send some of his men off into places where he thought they probably wouldn't be coming back, and I also had that in, that um, experience, unfortunately. But in terms of Lee's letters that he, he wrote during uh, the Petersburg siege, or throughout his career for that matter, I, I found it remarkable that you point out in your introduction, no one has ever collected and published all these letters uh, that they reside in separate repositories uh, around the world. Did you, so how did you come across the letters? How did, how did you make yourself a personal repository of these letters? <laughs> I like to think of that. I enjoy them very much. He was a wonderful letter writer, so um, he's been very good company for a very long time. Well, I think one of the reasons they haven't been collected is simply that the kind of presidential collections, for instance, that we think of as normal don't always take place for generals. General Grant's letters have been collected, but he was a president of the United States. So you don't always have these systematic collections of papers for people who have not held high public office. Um, but also they were hard to collect for a long time because they were still in the Lee family, and some of Lee's descendants didn't necessarily want them to be published. I first encountered them when he had a granddaughter still alive, um, and she had a lot of them in her home in Upperville, Virginia. And she 
really was uncertain that she wanted to make these these letters public, and the few times that she had allowed people to look at them, I think that there had been some unfortunate experiences and made her even more nervous about that. She allowed me to look at them because we were doing some restoration on Arlington House, the Lee family home that's now in Arlington National Cemetery. Um, and I was, it was a summer job I had there before I went to graduate school, um, doing a little bit of research for them as we looked at restoring the house. So she let me look at them with a view to finding out information about the property. Um, and, but again, there were restrictions on being able to publish from them. But I have to say that almost immediately upon starting to read these letters, I found that they were, they were remarkable. Um, here was this vivid personality that simply leapt from the pages. As I said, he's a, a wonderful letter writer, very amusing, very thoughtful, very introspective, much more doubtful than, and uh, insecure than we think sometimes that Robert E. Lee was. But he really wears his heart on his sleeve in these letters. So I knew that there was this body of documentation there that was still in the family that was quite extraordinary and that didn't necessarily overturn everything that we knew about Robert E. Lee, but embellished it, amplified it, made him much more of a flesh-and-blood person. Um, And so I got intrigued by that, and I thought, well, there must be other letters out there, too, and it was a kind of a treasure hunt for me to find this, um, what turned out to be more than 10,000 documents um, that tell us so much about who Robert E. Lee was. I would guess many listeners have already seen this book and and enjoyed it, but for those who haven't, the the structure is not quite uh, even what I thought it was when I first heard of it. it's not a collection of the letters as such. It's not 10,000 documents by any means. It's not an annotated uh, uh, documentary collection, but rather you use uh, a letter to introduce each paragraph or each each chapter and really write a, a biography informed by your reading of the letters rather than presenting the, the, the bulk of the letters to the reader. Uh, why did you decide to go that strategy? Was that to protect the, because of the use, restrictions on use of the letters? No, actually, by the time that I was working seriously on the book, you know, it started out as uh, my midnight endeavors. I mean, I was working really long hours in a very high-pressure job at the State Department at the time that I started it. So I was writing this thing at 2 in the morning. But by that time, the Lee family had lifted the restrictions, had put a large number of the papers in public repositories like the Virginia Historical Society. Um, And so I wasn't trying to go around in any way the, the sort of delicacies of dealing with the Lee family. And in fact, they were remarkably supportive of me and helpful all the way along, never asked me to show them chapters in advance or, you know, reveal the direction I was going to take and so on, um, even, even to their discomfort. And I admire that very much. There are some things that I think they have felt uncomfortable about, but never, ever, ever restricted me or criticized me for it. The reason I took that form, one, was a sort of cradle-to-grave biography. Well, we know, you know, where his footsteps were for the 64 years that he lived, or 63 years. We don't know exactly what year he was born. Um, and, and we sort of know the basic skeleton of the story. And so I didn't think that needed to be retold, even 
with all this rich information, rich uh, quotations from Lee himself. And then I was very enamored of the letters. I mean, I thought I like documents very much. I'm always interested in seeing the original sources. I'm not particularly interested in um, secondary works as much as I am going, going back to the primary source material, which I think is very precious and also always very revealing. And so I wanted to give people an opportunity to see some of these letters, to see the way that he wrote, that it was rather unpredictable. He wrote lots of funny letters to his kids and sexy letters to his girlfriends and tongue-in-cheek letters to his fellow army buddies. And um, even during the war, in, in some of the darkest days, wrote often lightheartedly, but also is a very introspective person. And so here is this person who really kind of comes to terms with the way he wants to live his life there on the written page. You can see it as he, as he works it out, almost as he's writing. So I wanted to give readers a chance to see that. And then I wanted them also to have a chance to do what a historian does, which is to take these documents and kind of mine them for the gold that's in them. And so that a document that may look very straightforward on the surface, once you start delving into that document or knowing what the backstory of it is, what's happening in Lee's life at that time, who are these people he's talking about, what is it that he's grappling with, that they became departure points, as it were, for uh, what I called historical excursions in this book, ways of examining a whole aspect of Lee's life, of his thinking, and also the patterns behind it, the social patterns, the familial patterns, and so on. And I hope that people would almost work along with me as they went through these letters to, um, to really go where the letter led them, to its final destination, to understand this is part of Lee's life. Right, I think it does that, uh, you know, certainly successfully. In that, it this book almost presents a, a, uh, a an introduction to 19th century American social and political history as well as just the, the Lee story because it, it sets it in that context. Uh, I'd like to explore that context a little more, but we're going to take a short break first. We'll come right back. We're talking today with Elizabeth Brown Pryor about Robert E. Lee in her book, Reading the Man, a portrait of Robert E. Lee through his private letters. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you one of the 64% of U.S. adults that are afraid to be in deep, open water? Did you know that almost half of all Americans are not able to swim in pools? Millions of Americans have taken swimming lessons and still have not learned to swim. Melon Dash is going to change all of that. Tune in to the Learn to Swim Show, a program that helps adults learn to swim. You'll find out why it's different than teaching a child and how simple it can be. Tune in to the Learn to Swim show, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. People are looking for hands-on alternatives to conventional psychotherapy. 
long-term therapy and medications to treat depression and anxiety are no longer the only answer. Tune in to Holistic Answers to Mental Health with your host, Aileen Neely. Let Aileen show you the techniques of energy psychology. You'll learn some of the more effective methods being used to treat stress, anxiety, marital issues, infertility, and empowerment. Listen every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Our guest today, Elizabeth Brown Pryor, is the author of Reading the Man, a portrait of Robert E. Lee through his private letters. We talked in our first segment a little bit about those letters and how they, uh, many of them still in the hands of Lee descendants, at least uh, for many years, uh, tell a, a not not necessarily a uh, oh, well they they tell a different picture not not radically different but a more revealing picture is perhaps the word I'm looking for of the the Lee that everyone knows from from uh, the great biographies uh, of, of Freeman and others and that's uh, what we'll continue to explore this afternoon. Elizabeth, the, you mentioned that the Lee family was very good about not uh, uh, enforcing any editorial control if you wanted to uh, write anything. And since you go chronologically, you start at the beginning, and uh, the beginning of Lee's life involves, of course, Light Horse Harry Lee, his revolutionary uh, hero father, who is uh, a very mixed character, a hero in, in some ways, but uh, a scoundrel and a villain in others. Uh, so, so right from the start, you had to write things that perhaps the leads wouldn't be so happy with. Yes, Light Horse Harry is fascinating. I don't know, scoundrel and villain might be a little bit harsh, but he certainly, um, while he was a, a, a genuine Revolutionary War hero, tremendously accomplished, tremendously admired by Washington, by Lafayette, who was a good friend of his, and was given a medal from Congress, um, one of the very few gold medals, a kind of a proto-medal of honor um, that was struck for Revolutionary War uh, leaders. And he was the youngest one to receive it. He was in his 20s when he got it. So he's an enormous figure in the American Revolution and an important political figure afterwards. But in his private life, he had a lot of trouble dealing with money. He got involved in land speculation. You'll recall that the American Revolution, one of the reasons that it was fought was so that all of this magnificent territory that was in the western part of the United States would not be under royal control, but would be open for people to settle, to buy, and so on. And he leapt on this idea with great um, eagerness, and he just couldn't keep his deal straight. And uh, he wove a web of such a tangled variety that he ended in debtor's prison, and it being prosecuted for some very strange and underhanded deals. And in the end, skipped bail 
and deserted his family when Robert was a very young child and went to the West Indies. The, the family story was that it was for his health, but we actually have a letter from the person who had put up the bond for him bemoaning the fact that Harry has left the country. So this is a person that Robert would have gotten very mixed signals about. And as a very young child, he was five or six when his father left, and he would have heard a lot about him both in very glorious terms and a lot of kind of snickering and joking and rolling of eyeballs in talking about Light Horse Harry. And I think it must have been a very perplexing situation for him. How? What was the influence ultimately, uh, as you see it, of, of, of Lee's father on his character? You know, it, Robert Lee himself is very quiet about this. He doesn't mention his father very often. We know a few things. We know that he, for instance, picked friends at West Point whose fathers had also fought in the Revolution. Some of them, like Joe Johnston, whose father had actually fought uh, in Light Horse Harry's Legion. Um, and that he read a lot of books about the American Revolution, though the um, sort of mythology that he worshipped Washington doesn't seem to quite pan out. He never checked out books about Washington, but about a lot of other revolutionary figures from the West Point Library. Um, And we know that he made some efforts to um, honor his father and show his respect for him, visited his grave a couple of times, and so on. but he's very, very quiet about his father. And so we really don't know what the influence was. There was one very telling line when he was engaged to Mary Custis, who he adored, um, and her father was very reluctant to let her marry Robert E. Lee because not only a scandal involving his father, but one involving one of his brothers. And the Lees were in very bad social terms at the point that he was wooing Mary Custis. And finally, he can't, he can't get up the courage to talk to her father about this. Finally, Mary goes to her father, and the father relents and says, okay, Robert is okay. Um, but he had grave doubts about the family members. And Robert does write a line to Mary saying, you know, I don't know what to do about this. I don't, he said, I think the censure of them is completely appropriate, but I have no way of overcoming it other than to try to avoid the mistakes that they've made. That's a paraphrase. He actually says it in a little bit more um, poignant fashion than that. But it it is one of the few acknowledgments we have of this troubled family life that he started out with. Let me ask you a a technical question about writing this. You mentioned he... Sometimes people say Lee, you know, worshipped or modeled himself after George Washington, and you found uh, a limited number of references to Washington in Lee's letters. And when I read that, I I immediately thought, did you transcribe or have letters transcribed so that they were in a searchable form and you could just search for Washington, or did you do it the old-fashioned way on note cards and just count up the note cards that Washington's on. I'm very slow to jump into technologies. First book I wrote, I wrote by hand on yellow legal pads. Mm. So that's very old technology. And it's it's an interesting idea whether it would have been a different book had I done it on the computer. This one I wrote on the computer. But I did take all the notes by hand. Ultimately, 
with much pain and agony, I have to say, after the book was published, I did transcribe them all and put them on the computer just because the happily the interest in this book has been so tremendous that I'm mm-hmm. called on to find all kinds of stuff and pull it out of the air of things that I used for the book, and it was just much easier to do it. And now the things that I'm working on, I have magnificently um, uh, segued into the computer world completely. But it is an interesting thing, the difference in doing it by hand and the difference in doing it on the computer. You know, they're, they're um, apples and oranges. But in the case of the book on Lee, it was all done on note cards. But on something like looking for references to Washington, I mean, that was one of the things I had in mind because I had read through so many of the letters already. And, and you know, one of these, the five great mythologies about Robert E. Lee is that not only that he, um, you know, admired Washington, but people say he idolized Washington. He patterned his whole life on Washington. You know, things, these are very strong statements because to do that, means to sort of deny parts of yourself that you're going to be like another person. So I was interested to see if that was really the case, and, and if so, how he did that. And what I found in, you know, 10,000 manuscripts was that he mentioned Washington that I found about 18 as the number that I came up with. Now, as soon as I say that, somebody will find another one. But, you know, it's around there. It's less than two dozen. I was not impressed by his, you know, obsession with Washington because of this. He's much more interested in General Scott, for instance, who he worked for, who he admired, and who he is very effusive in his praise for. The things that he says about Washington are more or less the same things that everybody at that time is saying about Washington. The whole country idolized Washington. And he certainly fit that pattern, but but also in that abstract sense that the whole country just sort of said, well, of course, there's nobody like Washington. I mean, he is, uh, you know, sui generis. Now, I know listeners are home going, five mythologies, uh, ask her about the other four. So uh, uh, you, what, what are the five mythologies? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I, just, I just pulled that out of the air. Um, <laughs> but, um, well, one of them would be that he patterned his whole life on Washington, one of them would be, um, I think, that he had no choice but to go with the South, that this was not a difficult decision. One historian has called it a no-brainer. One has called it the answer he was born to make. Another one said it wasn't as if he had any choice. I mean, that's just clearly not the case. Another well, let, one would let, be... Let, let's stop on that, let's actually. Stop there. Because <laughs> okay. that, that's, uh, that's such a good and interesting question. Um, and, and we'll leap ahead in time. Actually, I'll say something I have in my notes before I forget it, which is, as I was reading this book, I, I was put in mind of, of Bruce Catton in several ways, and uh, I don't think there will be any listeners to Civil War Talk Radio who haven't read something by Bruce Catton, and, uh, uh, the, the, the dominant writer of the Civil War in the mid-20th century. And in particular with this book, to be frank, when I first started reading it, there were some pages where I thought, I'm not sure I, I, I go with this. The writing style, uh, not what I'm used to. And that reminded me that whenever I read uh, Catton, for the first 50 pages, I just keep going, you've got to be kidding. Uh, that, nobody talks like that. Nobody writes like that. Uh, this is too rich, too uh, made up, too... Uh, 
uh, this is not a this just doesn't work and then you suddenly uh, develop the taste for it and then you're a thousand pages into the centennial history of the Civil War and you read it a second time at least that's what I did uh, and you end up reading everything else he wrote it, it takes a while to get used to it and then you cannot get enough of it and I had that reaction with this book, which, with, with your book, which I don't have with many, that uh, 100 pages in, I was thinking, hmm, I'm not sure, I, 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 I'm not sure how, how to do the rest of this. And by the time I was halfway through, I, I couldn't believe I was halfway through, that there wasn't more to go. Uh, it, it became, uh, it, it, it swept up the, the, the reader, in this case, the reader being me. Um, it really works. Uh, Another way it resembles Catton, in the centennial history of the Civil War, you get through all of Volume 1 of the three-volume set, and they're still not up to Fort Sumter. And you wonder, how's he going to finish this? And in your book, we get to page 300, and we're still not up to the Civil War. Uh, and, and again, the reader wonders uh, how we're going to finish this. But you have a great deal to say about the formation of Lee's character. Uh, but just to be sure that we don't fail to get to the Civil War today. Let's jump ahead to that all-important question you just touched on. Uh, why did Lee go with the South? Uh, and I could not agree with you more strongly. The argument he had no choice uh, is foolish. George Thomas had the same choice. Winfield Scott had the same choice. Uh, they were Virginians. Uh, why do people say Lee had no choice? And, and, and tell us about his choice. Well, it's a very difficult choice. Um, an agonized choice. His his wife called it the severest struggle of his life. <clears throat> In fact, I just recently found another new document, which is a, a biography, a little biographical sketch of her husband that she wrote just very soon after he died, in which she said, nobody who was there can imagine what this was for him, how tortured this decision was. So I think that statement alone could dismiss this whole idea that, of course, there was no choice. It was the answer he was born to make. Um, it was very difficult for a number of reasons. You know, of course, he had grown up in this family um, that had dedicated themselves to this early United States. His father was a Federalist, believed in the centralized power of the government, um, had fought very hard for a constitution that started, we the people, not we the states, did not believe secession was right, had said very pointed things about those things. Um, he had also been in the United States Army which was a very elite group of people. They had been trained to be leaders for the whole nation. They had been trained to rise above parochialism or sectionalism, and they had lived all over the United States. They had seen the country in a way, even at frontier outposts, that most Americans had not. And so they had a sense of this nation. They had a, an allegiance, a duty, a sense of the nation, and a tremendous bond with each other. It's a very small core of people it fought together in the Mexican War. They had served in really uncomfortable places in really dangerous situations. And there was a tremendous pride in this sort of esprit de corps that the Army itself had. And so when you read about Army officers from particularly border states making this decision in 1861, they're all agonizing. They're, they're, they throb with pathos. I mean, every one of them is difficult. So Lee's fits that pattern. And there he is living at his wife's home at Arlington, where he overlooks the nation's capital. Um, so it's all very real and personal to him. But at the same time, he has very strong emotional ties to the South. He's not an abolitionist, which we'd put in one of the five mythologies. He's not even anti-slavery. I mean, he agrees with the pro-slavery arguments 
down the line, every single one of them. He's in favor of expansion of slavery. He goes along with the Crittenden Compromise, which, as you know, um, would have forbade slavery from ever being eliminated in the United States. He says that deserves the support of every patriot, and so on. But he has this emotional tie to Virginia, and he has some practical considerations as well, which, again, I'm finding out more and more about since I wrote the book. He's very concerned about his children's property. His children have nothing to inherit from him because of his father's um, misuse of money. Lee himself had no inheritance. He had been able to educate his children through his army work, which he was very proud of, but he wasn't going to have anything to leave to his seven children whom he adored. He was a wonderful father. He adores these kids. He has nothing to leave them, but they had inherited property from their grandfather, their mother's father. And all that property was in Virginia, and he was very concerned that if he took the other side and if, in fact, the South pulled this off and Virginia was part of the Confederacy and the Confederacy became its own entity, that that property would be lost. Um, he's, you know, he's also concerned about being asked to, to follow orders in the Army to actually invade the South. His first idea when this dilemma really becomes acute, is that he'll sit out the war. He, what he really hopes will happen, though, is that Virginia will not secede. And he's very upfront about it. He says it several times. You know, I hope Virginia will keep right, he tells his daughter. Then she may be able to save the Union. And he, he thinks that if only Virginia will not secede, he can keep all of his loyalties intact. Um, but, of course, Virginia secedes, and he didn't seem to have really a plan B, or he's got a plan B, which is to sit out the war at Arlington. But his his great mentor, uh, Winfield Scott, collapses that when he goes in to see him, and he floats this idea with Scott, and Scott says to him, Lee, your attitude is equivocal, and there is no room in my army for undecided men. If you're going to resign, you better do it right away, because otherwise you will be ordered to take a part that you don't want. And so in what must have been a devastating moment for him, he goes back to Arlington and agonizes over what he should do. It, it doesn't seem like it's going to work to sit it out. The other thing I would say is the line that he concocts on this, that he can't raise his hand against his family, is also very problematical because as many of his family stay with the Union as fight for the Confederacy, I haven't done an actual head count, but it's pretty even. His sister never speaks to him again after this decision. Her son uh, fights against him at Second Manassas. He has very close cousins who are senior officers in both the Army and Navy. One's the um, judge advocate of the Union Army. One is a senior admiral. These are his best friends, cousins from when he grew up. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's it's a devastating situation. There's no real way to get it right. His first decision is just to resign, and that's the end. He's quite old. He didn't need to fight in that war. But um, for reasons that are still a little unclear, a few days later he does decide to accept the command of Virginia forces. 
You mentioned he wanted to preserve his property was, was one issue. Uh, and, of course, the irony is that Arlington is, is quickly taken over by Union soldiers. Reading this book, the protagonist, obviously, is, is Robert E. Lee, the, the, the subject of the biography. But uh, his wife is a, a close second in terms of characters you get to know. And I would argue that Arlington is, is maybe the third main character in the book, uh, if, if along with Light Horse, uh, Harry Lee, uh, that Arlington features so strongly in his life, even though he doesn't live there necessarily, uh, as he's in the army uh, out on the frontier or in other places. But uh, it, it really is a, a central uh, place for him. Uh, the music tells me we're going to take a short break and come back and talk about this question and others. Uh, our guest today, Elizabeth Brown Pryor, is discussing with us Robert E. Lee, the subject of her fascinating biography, Reading the Man. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be back in just a minute with more Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bolin. You are a divine manifestation of love and light. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are a parent of a child with autism, you know that there can be day-to-day struggles emotionally. Now you can share insights and outlooks with the Mother Cub Show. Your host, Susan Lynn Perry, a parent of a child with autism, will bring a new perspective to the subject, from diagnosis to effective treatments that are working. Her guests will include professionals, authors, and individuals that will bring wonder and hope to the world of autism. Tune in to the Mother Cub Show, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you a student? Maybe you've just started going back to school or are thinking about it. If you're interested in adult education, tune in to Learning as an Adult with your host, John Steely. Our program will cover topics you can use if you're a current or future student in any learning environment. You can be learning online or in a classroom. Either way, John will help you with problems, issues, and concerns facing students every single day. Tune in to Learning as an Adult with John Steely every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today about Reading the Man, a portrait of Robert E. Lee through his private letters with the book's author, Elizabeth Brown Pryor. We talked in our last segment about uh, many things, Lee's childhood, uh, Lee's uh, relationship briefly, uh, I mentioned with slavery. We talked about 
uh, most of all, his decision to fight for the South and how uh, difficult and anguished that must have been. Uh, there is so much in this book, we clearly won't touch on it all in, in a mere hour. Uh, the issue of slavery, for example, uh, Elizabeth, you pointed out that Lee supports many pro-slavery arguments, and that does undercut one of the uh, mythologies about Lee. Uh, I encourage our listeners who are all going to go out and buy a copy of this book. It's uh, available in paperback. Uh, I've got a nice Penguin edition here in front of me. Um, uh, if they don't already own a copy, they're all going to go out and get one and, and read that for themselves. But if we don't get to the Civil War uh, in this hour, there will be a, a rebellion. So <laughs> let me let me cut to the chase. Uh, you do a good job describing the campaign's uh, for in a way that I think is very satisfactory for people who know something about them. I, I, I really can't put myself in the shoes of somebody who's reading about the war for the first time. This has been too long. Uh, but I think every listener of the show will appreciate uh, you tell us enough about Antietam to remind us what's going on. And then you analyze and discuss what Lee did right. Uh, I wouldn't say right or wrong. It's not Monday morning quarterbacking that, that we see here, but more uh, discussing why Lee did certain things that he did, and uh, for for people who already know what he did, it's much more satisfying to have an intelligent conversation on paper about why rather than another rehash of which brigade went where at what minute. So uh, uh, let's let's start with the the, the bottom half. Uh, Lee is is defeated in an operational sense, at least, at Antietam. The campaign was a failure, and he certainly defeated on the battlefield at Gettysburg. Uh, we all know Lee was a great general. What went wrong for him on, on those occasions? What, what in his background made him make some bad choices? Well, there are some things in his background that I wish he had drawn on. His engineering experience, for instance, would have helped him out at Gettysburg a lot, but he seemed to have um, misread topography and urgencies of movements and so on there that maybe we would have liked to have had him draw on his West Point experience a little bit more. But what I would say is, you know, Lee is, uh, is a great general, and he has some huge pluses. I mean, an enormous ability to motivate his troops, enormous ability to sort of regroup after disaster, even turn disaster into advantage, very, very agile on the defense good tactically, and so on. But he also has some weaker spots, and, stri and strategic movements are one of them. And I would argue even any offensive movements. Um, when he doesn't have Jackson, either before he and Jackson become a team in 1862 during the Seven Days Battles, and after Jackson's death at Chancellorsville in 1863, he never wins an offensive battle either before or after Jackson. He wins some defensive operations, such as Cold Harbor, and he um, is able to maneuver still very agilely and has some tactical um, successes. But he does, isn't really that good on the offense on his own. And he also, I think, has some limitations in his reading of strategy. Now, you mentioned Antietam and Gettysburg, and one of the things that those two campaigns, the Maryland campaign of 1862 and Pennsylvania campaign in 1863 have in common is that they are very bold offensive maneuvers. They are offensive campaigns, they're not maneuvers. Um, and they're very risky. And in a lot of ways, 
there was really no reason for Lee to have undertaken them. I, in 1862, I think he and the Confederate leaders in Richmond, you know, you give them the benefit of the doubt. They really didn't know what would happen if they embarked on these campaigns northward. And remember, they went into uh, Kentucky in another northward excursion at about the same time. They thought Maryland might go along uh, with helping Confederate forces because it was a slave state. They um, needed some new places to get something to eat for both the men and the horses. They needed greener pastures, as it were. They thought they could threaten Washington, that Washington would become so nervous that it would collapse and that the um, controversy within the northern states over the conduct of the war would be made more acute. Um, almost, they were disproven on almost every front in 1862. The part of Maryland they went into did not rally around them, was not particularly pro-Confederate. Um, that didn't work. Washington was not scared to death. In fact, people seemed to have been pretty calm. The citizenry did not welcome their troops um, in Maryland, and they were able to forage for a little while, but the unbelievable cost of that campaign, you know, really couldn't be made up by um, uh, some forage for their horses. And, of course, it had huge political consequences because of what was called by both Lincoln and Davis um, a battle that went to the advantage of the North. That's the way both of those presidents phrased it. We have the Emancipation Proclamation. We have probably the... Um, death knell for foreign intervention on the side of the Confederacy and so on. An enormous, enormous political cost. Now, the big mistake I think he makes in that campaign, 1862, is not understanding that if he went north, the, the Union soldiers, the Yankees, would rally around their home. They would, it would energize them in the same way they had been energized in Virginia to defend their own territory. And in fact, it had that effect, both in 1862 and 63. When you read the letters of the soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia, they all mention it. They say, the Yankees fought us harder here than they've ever fought before. We want to go back to our own territory. It's easier to fight there. And what is so stunning to me in 1863, in which Lee convinces Jefferson Davis and the Secretary of War, Seddons, to go north, is that he seems not to have learned any of the lessons of 1862, and he particularly didn't learn that lesson that far from collapsing, the Union Army actually was going to fight more valiantly, harder, that little bit of extra edge that we see on Round Top and Culp's Hill at Gettysburg, just that little bit of um, impetus to defend their honor and their territory. And, and he underestimated that, I think, and he underestimated, and he didn't, didn't look at the lessons that had been learned, should have been learned in 1862. You mentioned that he convinced Jefferson Davis to do this. Um, Michael Palmer, in his book Lee Moves North, argues that uh, Lee actually went north and informed Davis after he was there, essentially. So if you look at the timing of the telegrams, uh, that, that Lee didn't didn't get he got forgiveness not permission uh to go north no, that's uh, from davis and that's 1862 i'm sorry that's in 1862 
And that is, in fact, what Lee does do then. He, he starts inching northward, and Jefferson Davis has got this idea he's going to go out and lead the army, right? Davis mm-hmm. is an old soldier, and he kind of likes being on the battlefield. And Lee sees this as not helpful, shall we say. And so he actually doesn't telegraph Davis until his guys are across the Potomac, or at least some of them are across. But in 63, that's a different story. After the Battle of Chancellorsville, he goes to Richmond, and Davis wants him, or at least part of his army, and him personally, Lee personally, to go to Vicksburg, to, which is under siege by Grant and his forces, to aid in the defense of Vicksburg. And it's at that point, and everybody in the room, the whole Confederate cabinet is there, everybody in the room really starts out with that being the idea that they would leave a few forces to defend Richmond, that Lee and his contingent would go to Vicksburg. And Seddon, Secretary of War, is really, he has a diary, he has very good papers on this, Um, very adamant that Lee, it's the one time he really, really adamantly argues something that he wants. And, And that is not only for his army not to be broken up, for him not to go to Vicksburg, but that they should go north again. Um, and so this is Lee, you know, Jackson was in on the deal in 1862, Davis was in on it and so on. But in 1863, it's Lee's decision and Lee's um, convincing of the Confederate cabinet that causes him to do this. Lee has been accused of being myopic towards the, the Virginia front, the Eastern front. This seems the, the, the primary example of it, where he instead of seeing the Confederate cause as a whole and the need to, to use troops in the West, he insists on, on staying home, as it were. Uh, you mentioned Lee had a weakness in terms of strategy. Is this, is this an example? Well, a lot of people think so in terms of Confederate strategy, okay, um, because there are people who think if he had shown his, his superior skills around Vicksburg and been able to save the Mississippi routes, and not cut the Confederacy in two and so on, he might have saved the Confederacy rather than started turning the tide toward the end of it, which is what Gettysburg did. You know, we can't know that for certain, but there are a lot of people who think that. I would say, you know, Lee doesn't give us a simple declarative sentence, at least not one I've found so far, in which he says, I only want to defend Virginia, other than that's what he repeats over and over in 1861. Save in defense of my native state, I do not want to draw my sword. I will only in defense of my native state, come to her aid. I mean, he's very specific that it's Virginia that he's about then. But if we look at actions, I would say they uphold that. That really he, you know, he isn't very happy when part of his army under Longstreet is sent to the West and fights in in, uh, Tennessee. He really is about defending Virginia. And when we look at his actions, that's, really what they say. But he never says, I'm not going to work for the whole Confederacy. I mean, we don't have anything that clear-cut. When, since time runs down, let me leap ahead to the end of the war. Uh, Lee, of course, uh, famously surrenders to Grant, uh, writes a very uh, eloquent message to his troops about the importance of of what they have done and the importance now of looking forward and not continuing to resist. Um, 
And you, you argue at the end of, of your book that this, in some ways, is, is really the source of uh, what we remember most about Lee, or, or perhaps what is greatest about him, his uh, response to defeat. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Well, he did lose with dignity, um, with great dignity, and I think the, the remarkable thing that he did was in a point of absolute chaos and bewilderment and bewilderness and, and tragedy um, among Southerners, he showed them a way forward. His own dignity and his own actions, he showed them how to step into a very dark and uncertain future, and he did it with, with tremendous aplomb. I think the mythology and all of that, if we're getting back to great mythologies, is that he somehow transcended this cataclysmic experience um, and was all forgiveness and um, happiness and um, serenity. And that is not the case. He was a terribly unhappy man after the war, really chronically so, and extremely bitter toward the war. And among the only pieces of paper that the Lee family did not let me publish are some little jottings that he made, almost as if he was making them on his night table, informal things, ranting against majority rule, ranting against the North, really angry, unhappy, provocative, racially difficult pieces of paper. And so I think maybe that makes his ability to put a a very dignified and honorable face to the world even more uh, significant is that he's really in turmoil underneath. He's uh, in, in some ways uh, an 18th century figure like uh, like Light Horse Harry Lee. Uh, I was reading Gordon Wood recently on the Founding Fathers, who talks about the uh, uh, the importance in the 18th century of presenting a public face, and it was supposed to be your public face, and no one expected it to be the same as your private world. Uh, today, we, we we collapse those differences. If there's any difference between public and p- private, we we wiki leak it out as quickly <laughs> as we can. Um, and and uh, uh, if this were not a civil war show, I'd ask if you're involved in any of those documents. But that's for another program. Um, uh, instead, this is civil war talk radio, and uh, tragically, we are out of time already. Um, well. Any listener who doesn't have a copy of Reading the Man, a portrait of Robert E. Lee through his private letters by Elizabeth Brown Pryor uh, needs to uh, go to the local independent bookstore and get one uh, this afternoon or evening or whenever you're listening. Uh, and you will get caught up in it and enjoy it thoroughly and learn things you didn't know about Robert E. Lee and uh, uh, look at him in new ways uh, with new insights. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for for writing the book and for uh, sharing your thoughts today. It was a great pleasure to be with you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com 
The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. <laughs> 